You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Big black book. It's an intimidating book. You look across at it and you think, is my name written in there? I mean, is this the principal's book? Am I in trouble? Have I done something wrong? And this black, leather-bound book called the Bible is one that we might think just isn't for us, that it's about the good guys. And maybe the only place where we might show up is that we're the bad guys in this particular book, and we don't really want anything to do with it. Well, as we've been going through the story of God, we, we figure out that even the people who are God's people are not immune to very bad and difficult things. Even God's people figure out that judgment comes on them, that that God will show them the door. And when we last left them, they were in a pretty bad spot. Well, I want to thank you for being on this journey, this journey through the story of God. We are in week five. We're spending 12 weeks of going through the entirety of Scripture. And I just want to thank you for the reading that you're doing in Scripture, the discussions that you're having with your small group, And the way that you're really investing yourself in this, that takes a lot. And this this journey is definitely a theological journey. Theo, God, it's a study of God as the main character. And it's got some history because we're tracking through the historical flow of God's work in this world. And yet, you probably lean back and you still see it as this black leather book with all this binding and you say, so I mean, what about me? What about my life? I, I don't connect with all those crazy names in the Bible. That's not about me. My life's a mess. I can't seem to pull it together. It's chaotic. I'm confused and wonder what to do. Well, I hope you'll be patient with me because we're going to spend some time talking about that. I'm going to build toward that, but we've got to travel through some stories, some stories from long ago. But I promise We'll come back with some answers of where you start whenever your life is a wreck and you're wondering where to go next. World powers don't last forever. And that may be news to those of us in America, but there is no scripture that God says he's going to take care of America forever. And so I want you to imagine for yourself what life will be like when America fails. And that can be fairly unsettling to think about, when? No, no, this is a Christian nation. Well, things change. Lots changes. We're thinking about football today. Stadiums get built. And how how long does it take before you tear that thing to the ground and build a brand new one right on top of it or right next to it? Presidents change. Thankfully, every four years, sometimes every eight years. It's good that we get to have change. Congress changes. The players on the field change. And we have to understand that world powers are not always in charge. And so I'm wanting you to think about what life is like when there's trouble. Because trouble becomes, yeah, something that we're frustrated with in the present moment, a difficulty, an obstacle, a challenge that we're going through. And yet trouble is that opportunity for something new to happen, for something different to come into our lives. If you were thrown in prison, 
your practice of faith would have to change. I don't mean that your faith would change, but how that faith gets expressed would change. Thomas Pettipe tells the story of when he was imprisoned as a Christian with another group of Christians. And they're in prison. No Bibles, no opportunity to practice worship, no communion, no elements. And so what they did was they would grab an imaginary piece of the body of Christ to eat the bread and hold it up and say, this is the body of Christ. Totally imaginary. And they would take it. And they would hold up the cup and say, this is the cup, the blood of the new covenant. This is Jesus' blood poured out for us. And non-believers that were with them saw this expression of faith and this imaginary expression of faith and said, I'm seeing for the very first time what Christianity looks like. And they provided sound protection and cover so that those Christians could practice their faith even in prison. In this story of God, when we left it, it was like going out of a very difficult and sad movie where you're like, I didn't want it to end like that. And you shuffle along and you're depressed and it's like you have lead in your shoes and you wonder what's going to happen. The city of God is an ashen city. The temple is a smoldering ruins. The wall that protected it all is just gravel or driveways. It's all gone. And everything is all about despair. There's no hope and maybe there's no God. Have you been there? Are you there right now where you just wonder, is God paying any attention to what's going on in my life? Well, when we left them, we kind of set up two tombstones, two dates. I told you I don't like to do dates, but the first one was 722 B.C., where the larger kingdom that had divided and split, the kingdom in the north of Israel, fell, fell to the Assyrians. They were wiped out, and the tribes of Judah, the smaller kingdom, they kind of thought they might survive. I mean, after all, that's where David's from. God had made all those promises to always have an heir of David on the throne. It's where the temple was. It's where Jerusalem was. Surely they would survive. No, erect the other tombstone, 587 B.C. This time a new world power, the Babylonians. Did you catch that? The world powers change. The Babylonians sweep through and pull the temple apart, and they leave it dust. This story is one of the people being captive by the Assyrians in 722, exiled by the Babylonians, and where royal people like Esther and Daniel are hauled off, and only the lower class, the less educated, are left in this ruins of Jerusalem. World powers would continue to change to Persia, where mercy starts to show up, to the Greeks and to the Romans. But that's for another time. We're in Babylon. Psalm 137. The hits that were playing on the radio changed. Psalm 137 is a song where these captives in Babylon are being goaded by the Babylonians saying, hey, sing to us some of those Zion songs, those victory songs, you oppressed slaves. And they said, we're not doing it. They hang their harps in the trees. We're not going to sing until we're back in our land. And yet they marked it in their mind as a point when they would come back. They would come back to this country that had been hit like an F8 tornado, wiped slate clean. 
Now, in this story, we have to realize that God is the hero. It's not Israel. It's not Judah. It's not us. In fact, it's not even the foreign kings that God uses in some powerful ways. But in these moments, in these moments of change where your faith is ripped out from under you and all that you think of as normal is gone, you must do some reinterpreting. You must go back to square one and say, well, what does this mean now? You have to reevaluate and think about your life in a new way. The foreign kings that God used to tear down Jerusalem are also foreign kings that God will use to build back Jerusalem, strangely enough. So far in this story, we've kind of gone chronologically. If you look on the table of contents of your Bibles, those first books from, from Genesis on down through Nehemiah kind of go chronologically, except for outliers like Esther and Ruth that are in-depth studies of a couple of great women. An exception would be the Kings and the Chronicles. They tell the same story, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But what's different about the two of them is when they tell those stories. First and Second Kings tell the stories whenever they're fresh and everyone's feeling the judgment of God. Kind of like if you're a World War II vet and you're telling it about something that you went through. The Chronicles tell it much later. Same story, but they're looking back and it's more like a historian many decades, even a century later, thinking about those events. The bumps kind of get smoothed out. David is turned a little bit more positively. You don't even mention things like Bathsheba. You don't say her name at all. Same story, different points of history where it's told. Things change. What doesn't change is that there are a couple of metaphors that get used. Two approaches that the prophets use to communicate to the people. And one of them is the idea of the remnant. The remnant. It's a word that in the Hebrew means tent peg. So if we have this F8 tornado ripping buildings down, imagine what it would do to a tent. You take it out. The poles are gone. The canvas is ripped. The ropes are gone. All that's left in the sand is one little tent peg. And so the prophets would pull that tent peg up and say, God's going to rebuild his people from this tent peg. Can you imagine rebuilding on the same site? Same foundation, you've got one pipe sticking up. The remnant is this idea of God building from nothing. Second metaphor, the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, you don't have to remember that one. Remember this, the steadfast love, the faithful loyalty of God that won't go away. It's this commitment that God has to his people, that he's going to stick with them. It's what Solomon prays in the prayer that we're praying over and over again. 1 Kings 8, 23. Oh God, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and, oh, there it is, steadfast love, hesed, for your people who walk before you with all their heart. Well, how do you get through in those times when life stinks? It's through the prophets. Can I go back in time for just a minute to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, he didn't get to see anything good happen in his time. And you might remember part of this passage. He is predicting that the Babylon, Babylonians will take over uh, God's people. In, in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, this is what Jeremiah says. And no one really liked him, by the way, because everything was going just fine. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you 
And will I fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place? And they shrugged their shoulders and were like, whatever, we're doing just fine. Now see if you don't recognize this on graduation cards in the next few months. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call on upon me, I will come to you. You remember that? Have you seen that in some graduation cards? That's the setting, a prophecy about a destruction and a prophecy about what will happen later. And they just think Jeremiah is nuts and crazy. World powers change. Here's how it changes. In 538, a Persian king Cyrus makes a decree, an edict, and he says, go home. Go home. He says to the Jewish people, you're able to go back. In the very last chapter of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, and the first chapter of Ezra, go home. Now, wait a second. If you look in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, do you know what Cyrus, this Persian king, did I emphasize that enough? Persian king? In Isaiah 45, he's called the Lord's anointed. Hold on, wait a second. That's a term we use for David and Saul. That's what we use for insiders. And the prophet Isaiah calls this foreign king, the Lord's anointed, the one who is to bring them back. How about that? After those 70 years, a lot happens, and there are some results of the captivity. Some of them are short-lived. Well, I mean, one result is that there's this blot, these two tombstones on history where judgment kind of took place, and they had to think about what it meant that as God's people, they weren't in a privileged position, that they could be shown the door. That, that happened. A second thing is that idolatry, worship of other gods, kind of disappears for a bit, except for when you're living in those other countries and you're tired of the God that you have, and, well, idolatry comes back in, right? Two more things that happened. A third one is that whenever your faith practice is uprooted and imprisoned, you have to practice in a different way. And so the Torah... Focus in on the law becomes first and foremost. They become a people of the book because they don't have a temple to go to. They don't have the big mega church in Jerusalem to go worship at. Which brings us to the fourth thing that happens. Local gatherings of people to read scripture. The synagogue takes place. Reading of the scripture and learning what God said so that it could be lived. So there are things that happen in those 70 years that are quite positive. Well, I want to tell you the story of their return, of what it looks like when God's people came back to the land. And I want to do so a little bit more personally with three stories of a king, of a scribe, and a politician. And they have weird names like most everyone in the Bible. It's, it's a thing that you have to have. You have to have a unique name. So first the king, King Zerubbabel. King Zerubbabel in 538 begins to make his way back. And this is recorded in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel, when he's coming back, restores the altar first and the foundation of the temple. Now, you might sit back and think, all right, if I'm rebuilding a country like Iraq or Afghanistan, is that where you start? Do you start by building an altar and a temple? I don't know. If I put you in charge, made you the leader, you might say, well, why don't we start with security forces, with army? Wouldn't that be a good way to begin? Seems like a good way to begin, but that's not the way Zerubbabel begins. In fact, he
he gives priority to the worship. It's not something that really stuck with them. They had to be told repeatedly about it, and I'll say more about that in the morning, in a minute. But one of the ways that this happens is even a foreign king has to remind them. I mentioned King Cyrus, right? Persian King Darius says, hey, Cyrus made this edict. You're supposed to rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple. And so they're reminded by yet another foreign king. Zerubbabel is one of these guys who has kind of a long history. He, his name means offspring of Babylon. He's actually the, the grandson of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is the great-great-grandson of Josiah, that great king. And so Zerubbabel has kingly blood in him, but, man, he's never seen anything, really, about what life is like inside of Jerusalem. It's different for him. He's even mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And Zerubbabel is the one who brings the priority back to worship. All right, so that's one story, Zerubbabel. The second one is Ezra. Ezra is a scribe. So we've got our king, now we've got our scribe. Ezra loves the law of Moses. He is well-trained in the law of Moses. In chapter 7 of Ezra, he is a scribe who has set his heart upon the law. To study it, to teach it, to, to do it, to practice it in every single way. And In Ezra chapter 9, there's even a point where he gets down on his knees, and he raises his hands, and he's fasting, and he's begging God to take care of the people. Cute little note to self. What do you do when things are a wreck? Pray. Get on your knees. Fast. Make a little mental note of that. He calls on God in chapter 9 that God's steadfast love would be there for the remnant. Oh, there's our two things. Steadfast love and remnant in Ezra chapter 9. In fact, this gets confusing because written in Nehemiah, and I'm not going to get into all these scholarly things about whether Ezra and Nehemiah knew each other. I, that's a whole other book. But Nehemiah 8 through 10, Nehemiah tells about Ezra climbing up this wooden platform that they built to read the law of Moses. I kind of think about the church in Santa Fe with that massive staircase. You know, talk about giving priority. You're having to look way up. And get this, he reads from the law from early in the morning to men, women, and children until noon and the people hear the word of the law read and they weep and they cry and they fast hmm. they put on funeral clothes and they say we agree that we want to be turned back to god we want to live faithfully and that is what their choice is all right we've done zerubbabel the king ezra the scribe which brings us to the politician they didn't really know exactly what to call nehemiah Nehemiah works for another Persian king, Artaxerxes. His job is to taste test for the king. You know, you don't want your king to die. That would just be a bad thing. And so you have a taste tester to keep uh, his food clean and pure. Well, that was Nehemiah's job. I want you to open up your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1. This is a great, great story. I'm just going to look at it briefly. But about 12 years after Ezra, this high-ranking official gets news that Jerusalem is in shambles, that the wall is terrible. And when he hears the status of his country, he begins to weep and cry like we would if we would think about things that we value. So I want you to hear some of this. Verse 4 of chapter 1 in Nehemiah. 
When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? Let's keep going. With those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Make a little mental note. What did Nehemiah do when he heard this? He mourned, he prayed, and he fasted. Now, what was his job again? Oh, yeah, taste testing for the king. Hmm, I wonder if he showed up for work. No, I don't think he did. You think the king probably missed him? Yeah, I think so. In chapter 2, Nehemiah shows back up for work. Shows up to this king that knows him well. So look in verse 1. Blah, 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 blah. King Artaxerxes, I carried the wine, I gave it to the king. Let me show you how much they knew one another. The king said, what's wrong with you? You, you look very sad. This can only be sadness of the heart. Of course, Nehemiah has been weeping for days. He's been fasting. He's been going without food. And look in verse 3. Verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you're not sick, this can only be sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the palace of my ancestors' graves, lies in waste and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Did you notice that? The king asked him what's wrong. He's scared to death. And he prays. He prays to God after he's what prayed and fasted and mourned and then what he does is he says would you let me go build my country back and the king says yeah and Nehemiah says well would you give me protection papers to go yeah would you give me free lumber to go back yeah notice in his life when it was a mess and a wreck he prayed he fasted he wept before God, and God answers his prayers. In this amazing story, I, I'm stunned by the fact that God uses a king named Zerubbabel, who's an insider. He uses a scribe named Ezra, who's also an insider, who knows the law of Moses. And he uses this guy, Nehemiah. That's not surprising, right? We expect this book to be about those who are on the inside. But don't overlook the fact that God uses all of these foreigners, outsiders. King Cyrus of Persia, King Darius to say, hey, you forgot about it. You're not doing the edict. And King Artaxerxes to provide protection and materials and support. That's what stuns me is how God uses us all. This is a story for us all. And yet we lean back and we're like, oh, there's a lot of babbles, Brady. There's a lot of weird words, a lot of strange places. Ah, this has been sailing over my head. So what? I don't care. My life's still a mess. And we've been traveling in this ancient story. How do I get my life straight? How do I turn things around? How do I make sense of my life when it's a mess, when it's chaotic and hope is gone? God's promises to save a remnant and to show faithfulness still meet our commands and our requests of well are you even there god 
Our typical response is the three C's. You know what the three C's are? I'm going to complain, I'm going to criticize, and I'm going to condemn. That's pretty much our approach to everything right now. I'm going to complain, I'm going to condemn, and I'm going to criticize. And maybe that's the way you want to approach life. But it's everybody else's fault. They need to hear your complaints, and you just want to hear criticisms echoing out of your voice. Well, there are other approaches. In one such place, here we are on the week of Valentine's, I thought we'd go to one more prophet, the prophet Malachi, who's, who's at the end of this story. You know, there's always the prophets along the way. And Malachi comes in this love story to the people of God and tries to tell them, look, God's been with you all along. And they say, well, how has he been with us? And Malachi says, well, he's been showing his love. And they say, well, how, how has he been showing his love? Verse 1 of chapter 2. Well, you've failed to honor him. Well, how, how have we failed to honor him? Well, you've wearied him over and over with your requests that are not backed by action. And they say, how have we wearied him? And it gets to my favorite verse in the prophet Malachi. Verse 6 of chapter 3. When Malachi says from God, do you really want proof that God loves you? The proof that God loves you is you're not dead yet. How's that for your valentine? Okay, wait. Okay, God. Uh, the proof that you love me is that I'm not dead yet. Well, let me think on that for a little bit. Let me let that sit into my soul. The calling is for us to return to a God who's loved us all along. This proof of our existence and our life is a pretty significant proof. And we might be tempted to just complain and to condemn and to criticize, to just hang out in those three C's. In fact, when we try to rebuild our walls, we probably do it in the order that I described. It's the reverse. We want God to provide some kind of protection, some kind of hedge around us to get things cleaned up in our life. And then... Maybe we'll start doing what he says, and maybe then we'll show up for worship. Maybe then we'll turn toward God. But if you look at the way these stories unfold, in Ezra and Nehemiah, the way it unpacks for us is that if you, instead of starting out with complaining, you go to God and worship. Well, I don't believe in God. Go worship God. I dare you. If you're tired of God, if you feel like God is bankrupt, spend your life surrendering yourself to God. That's the starting point. I'm giving you my life, God. The shambles of what I've made of it and the shambles of what all the people who claim to love me have made of my life. Surrender your life and worship to God. Don't spend your time complaining. Instead of condemning others for what they've done to harm you, or pointing the finger at them, because they're to blame, they certainly probably are. But drop that and instead begin to obey what God has said. You may not know everything that God is commanding you to do, but when you return to the law, when you return to this pointer that God has given, you're taking on a different approach. So worship followed by obedience, which leads to the third one, to allow in your trust of God, God to be your wall of protection. To show trust, faith, belief, all the same words, 
but to trust that God's going to come through. And it may not look like it at the time, because you may be sitting in a smoldering ruin of your life. Ashes, remnants of the F8 tornado. I don't know what it is for you. Enough that we might could spend our time criticizing other people. But instead of doing those things, we turn to God in worship, we turn to God with our obedience, and we turn to God with our ultimate trust. And I dare you, I dare you to try it. Now God's got a long clock, so you may have to give him some time. But in this story of God, the beginning of turning your life around and making sense of the chaos is beginning to be in worship with God's people. Following the things that you know that are good, of choosing that path, and then of trusting that God can make something good out of the nothingness that you see. Let's pray. God, we're here. We're still here. We are surrendering our lives to you in worship. We're asking you to show us which way to go. The way that's good and true and right. And we're going to try to trust, to believe, to have faith that you will do with our lives something beyond what we can imagine. God, I pray for all of us as we take that risk of faith, that risk of surrender, to realize that we need you. We thank you for what you've done in Jesus, the name that's above all names, the way that you've powerfully shown your presence with us in this world. And so we ask through Jesus that you will start something new in our life. Through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.